Hello there, peace be upon you. Welcome to Rational Religion. By the grace of God, we've recently hit 10,000 subscribers. Um, so we thought what we'd do for that is a response to comments video. I'm here, of course, with my brother Tahir. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Um, and we have a bunch of comments, obviously, on various videos. We've just chosen chosen a few of them that grabbed our interest that we thought might be interesting to, um, to talk about. Uh, so let's go to the first one. And I think the first one is... Um, the one, one of the ones on the David Belinsky interview where someone said most awkward interview seating arrangement ever. Um, and there is a, there is a funny story there. Um, so why don't we, uh, why don't we tell them the, the funny story, but also actually before, before we go there, just want to say again, thanks to David for that fantastic interview. Um, he, you know, really, he was very gracious, invited us over to his home in Paris and, uh, gave us a great discussion. So, uh, we are very thankful that he, he did that. And, uh, he was, he obviously gave us a lot of time as a long interview and his answers were top notch. And I think that's reflected by the fact that a lot of people really enjoyed that, um, that interview. Uh, but we did le learn a little something about seating arrangements, uh, when we went there. <laughs> Do you want to share what happened? He's, he's, the adjective that best describes him, at least that has been used online, is incorrigible. It wasn't incorrigible with us, he but wasn't. there was a, um, there was a, he was, you know, at the end of the day, we wanted to film in his living room and he was happy with that. We wanted to use a particular space around his fireplace, which is very beautiful. I think it was a fireplace. Was I think sense. we just wanted to use a sofa and hit him, him on the chair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just basically like was like, no, let's all sit on the couch. <laughs> and then we were like, I'm not going to argue with David Belinsky in his own home. So yeah, okay, fine. Um, so that was basically it. And the consequence was a very intimate interview. Um, at some one point, David was basically reclining. So the consequence was that the camera actually, the camera line was, the shot of the camera was actually obscured by his legs covering his face, his knees. Which were crossed over each other, um, so we had to surreptitiously move the camera. The second, yeah, camera. I remember that. Razik had to like pick up the camera and like move it in 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 the middle of shooting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it made for a very interesting interview seating, and consequently, I think people it suited. I think the nature of our discussion, which is that it was not formal; it was very informal, and it was um, very spontaneous. Hmm. And um, in that regard, I think people uh, found the entire interview, including the seating arrangement, to be novel. Yeah, that's a good word for it. That is a good word for it. I'll also give people a little bit of a um, tidbit. So this whole, this panel here, this wooden panel is fake. So before this, there was something which didn't work at all. I think either it was a very bright window or it was a, something which just didn't work in the video. So our um, editor our editor, Razik, um, he uh, very, very expertly put in a wooden panel that no one's ever noticed. It's completely fake, wasn't there before. A <laughs> uh, comment that we're going to talk about slightly more seriously is um, this one. Uh, and let's see what it says. This is on the Malcolm X video uh, that we did. It says that the Malcolm X one about racism. So the, the Oasis of Free the YouTube said, the video is very good and knowledgeable. Anyone read the description which says, learn more about Ahmadiyya Islam? For those of you who don't know, Ahmadiyya Muslims do not consider the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, as the last messenger of Allah, which contradicts the Quran. Um, and then I, I, didn't, I didn't get the read more clip, but basically it was uh, saying that uh, we're not Muslims and basically beware. And we do get quite a few of these kinds of videos as well on our um, 
sorry, a lot of these kinds of comments on our videos. Um, what are your initial thoughts on on reading those? This is the classic old line, isn't it? You know, not a Muslim because you don't believe he's the last messenger. But um, we, as we know, we believe in every pronouncement of the Quran. Um, the word that he is the last messenger is a translate is a bad translation or a completely incorrect translation of the word Khatam and Nabiin, which is described, uh, which is mentioned in the Quran um, as a description of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And um, we, the correct translation is the seal of the prophets, which, mm -hmm. and the seal means there, it doesn't mean the seal like just like the verb to seal something. It's actually the noun, the seal, like the seal of a ring. Mm -hmm. So a signet ring, for example, has an inscription that's called a seal. Um, and in olden days, you would, if you were sending a letter far away to somebody else, you would put the letter in an envelope, seal it with hot wax. The wax would close the letter, the message, and then the seal would be used to authenticate the sender of that message because only the, the king or that particular individual would, contain, would possess that physical inscription and seal. And so to be the seal of the prophets actually means to be, it doesn't not, has nothing to do with being last in the sense of time, actually. What it actually has in sense of being is that it's actually the authenticator of the prophets. Mm -hmm. um, and what that means is that the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, authenticated the truth of all past prophets by virtue of the fact that every Muslim has to believe in every past prophet from previous religions and also has to accept the principle that God has sent prophets to every nation on earth throughout time. Mm -hmm. And as for the, the authenticator of future prophets, it means that nobody would be would emerge from amongst uh, nobody would emerge in the world as a prophet except who would be a follower of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. In other words, they would need his authentication by virtue of having been being uh, perfect reflections and perfect followers of his teaching. And so by receiving the impress of the Prophet Muhammad's teaching, they would be raised to the station of prophethood. And in that sense, he is the final law-bearing teacher, if yeah. that makes sense. Because if you are the person, if you are the last teacher and all future teachers will only come from your teaching, then you could say that you, your law is the last law. Because it's uh, actually, it's the law by which even all future teachers will emerge through. Yeah. Okay? Um, and then the final aspect of it is that the Quran itself talks explicitly about this whole d d interpretation. And this is what people often, you know, Sunni Muslims, Shia Muslims, they get drawn with Ahmadis into these long discussions on the term khatam and what it means. A simple way to address this is just to look at another verse of the Quran and recognize that the Quran does not contradict itself. Okay, if you believe the Quran is from, from God, then you cannot accept contradiction in the word of God. So you have to interpret things in a way that um, harmonizes the various verses. And another verse of the Quran is chapter 4, verse 69 or 70, depending on the numbering of your Quran, which is, It's that verse. And it says, whoso obeys Allah and this messenger, Muhammad, in other words, this messenger, Muhammad, whoso obeys Allah and this messenger shall be among those on whom God has bestowed his blessings. The prophets, namely, the prophets, the truthful, the martyrs and the righteous, and an excellent company are these. This is the great grace of Allah, is yeah. what it then goes on to say. Now, I was thinking to this about this, and this is quite clear verse. I mean, it says, if you follow Allah and this messenger, you can be among the prophets. It's very clear. Yeah. 
um, Sunni Muslims have to really get around this verse. They don't know what to say about this verse because it explicitly states, explicitly, if you follow Muhammad, peace be upon him, properly and Allah and obey them, then you will be raised as you could be raised to the station of prophet, which means that at least one person in the following of the Prophet Muhammad must be must end up being a prophet to fulfill this verse. Um, but they say, no, 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 it doesn't mean he'll be among them. It just means that they will be with them in the afterlife. So they will not be from among the prophets in terms of being one of them, but they'll be with the prophets in the afterlife. But because of the way the sentence is constructed, it says that they will be, um, that they will be, uh, whoso obeys Allah in this message shall be among or with those on whom Allah has bestowed his blessings. Then God enumerates the blessings. So if you interpret it like that to say it means with, but not one of, in other words, you'll be in their company, but you won't be one of them. Then yeah. it means natural fact that no Muslim will ever be by following the prophet Muhammad and obeying Allah will ever be righteous, a martyr, or a Siddiq, which means Hazrat Abu Bakr, the first caliph of Islam, who is known as Abu Bakr Siddiq, could not be in Siddiq. It just means he'll be Siddiq on the Day of Judgment in terms of being in their company, but won't be one of them. It means Hazrat Umar was not a Shaheed. means Hazrat Uthman was not a Shaheed. It means Hazrat Ali was not a Shaheed. means Hazrat Hussein was not a Shaheed. Crazy. Crazy. How could it be? Um, I think the funniest part of it, however, in a sense, it's not funny, but it's... <laughs> There's a humorous aspect to it. Is a God in the next verse says, This is the great grace of Allah. <laughs> so if it just simply means being in their company, but not attaining the ranks of the prophet, the truthful, the martyrs, and the righteous, then actually what it means is, is that God is boasting of the great grace he has bestowed upon you, which is in actual fact no different to the grace he bestowed upon the disbelievers of Mecca and the hypocrites of Medina, which was the company of the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Oh, that's a good point. That's a very so good point. What, what an odd and Basically, you, you know someone who's, who's very righteous, but you won't actually be righteous yourself. Yeah. But, but you're, you have a friend who's righteous. Yeah, you'll enjoy their company. Yeah. But you won't be righteous yourself. Well, you know what? Abu Jahl enjoyed that grace. Yeah. You know, Abdullah bin Obey, the hypocrite of Medina, the leader of the hypocrites, he enjoyed that grace. He enjoyed the company of the Prophet Muhammad in the city. Yeah. So, 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 so is that the grace, grace that God is talking about? Yeah. What a wonderful grace. Is God being sarcastic here? <laughs> this is the great grace I bestowed upon you. The, the same as the hypocrites of Medina and the disbelievers of Mecca. It's a joke. So, yeah. so, so as Ahmadi Muslims, we always say, look, at the end of the day, you, know, you have to understand the verses of the Quran in, in conjunction with one another. We certainly believe that the Prophet Muhammad was the last teacher of mankind. But the greatest proof that he is the best teacher is that one of his students should attain the highest rank as well. After all, that is what a teacher, a prophet is. He's a teacher, and that's how you judge whether a teacher's good. You, you see how high their students go. Yeah. So you said a lot there. Let me just uh, break some of that down and just summarize it, if that's okay. So you said that he is the seal of the prophets, which means that he is the best of the prophets, and it means that any prophets that would come would have to bear his mark, would have to bear his seal, um, and he would authenticate them, essentially. Right, so it basically means that any future prophet would have to be a Muslim. He'd have to be a follower of the Prophet Muhammad. He set the curriculum. He, you know, you learn from him, and you can only be the teacher if you follow his guidance. That's what the seal of the prophets is. You know, yeah. he's he's the consummate prophet, and as in that power, he can raise up others. And then you've said in uh, chapter four, verse sixty-nine to seventy, depending on the numbering, the Quran says that. Muslims can be among the prophets very explicitly. And I think I'll just add, you know, one last point, which is that all Muslims believe that a prophet will come after the prophet Muhammad. Um, and they believe that Hazrat Isa, who is Jesus, you know, the Messiah, son of Mary, will, um, will 
will lead the ummah in the future after the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And this is described in the uh, hadith that the Messiah, the son of Mary, will uh, descend or will arrive um, or will be raised. And the hadith also clarify the meaning of that very clearly. They say that the Messiah will descend upon you and he will be your imam from among you. So he'll be the imam that is raised from among you. And then the Quran is very clear that the Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him, has actually passed away. You know, وَمَا مُحَمَّدًا إِلَّا رَسُولُ قَدْ خَالَتْ مِنْ قَبْلِهِ الرَّسُولُ You know, the, the Muhammad, peace be upon him, is a messenger of God. The messages before him have passed away. And in many, many other verses, the Quran says that Jesus, peace be upon him, has passed away. And we can link to a page which lists some of them um, uh, below in the description. So all Muslims believe that the prophet will, a prophet will come after the, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that he'll receive revelation as per the Sahih Muslim um, hadith. He'll receive revelation. He'll be a Muslim and he will fight the forces of evil in the latter days. All Muslims believe that the only difference is we don't believe it's literally the Jewish prophet from 2000 years ago who will literally physically descend from the sky. We believe those are misinterpretations. P Jesus, peace be upon him, died, passed away, passed away in, um, in Kashmir, which we've done a video about, and that the, 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 time, the title, the epithet of Messiah, son of Mary, the Messiah, means that just as someone came in the 14th century after the, after the prophet Moses, peace be upon him, to reform the Jews when they had lost their spirituality and become much more extreme in their actions, so would someone from among the Muslims come to reform the Muslims in the 14th century after the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and he would be messianic in his qualities. And this individual must be a prophet, as per what the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said. So, uh, I mean, is there anything you'd like to add there? Um, no, other than the fact, well, yes, I mean, small point, which is kind of touching on what you've already mentioned, which is that, you know, as Sunni Muslims and Shia Muslims believe that Jesus will return, they accept the need for prophethood continues. Yeah. In fact, they believe Jesus was raised to heaven, you know, at the time of his crucifixion to prevent him being crucified, just so that God could bring him back in the latter days as a prophet. Yeah. But at the same time, God has closed the door of prophethood, according to them, for anybody new to be raised to the standard of prophet. So it's a bit stupid. It's like a king of a city saying, right, we don't need any more food. And it's like a king of a city, you know, saying, you know, we do have a need for food, but I'm going to close all the doors for food. Mm. You know, all the gates are going to be, all the front gates of the city are officially closed, not accepting any more food because we don't need any more food in the city. And then opening a back door in the city and quietly bringing some food in, you know, so which is exactly what it is. I mean, why declare profit had ended when you deliberately raise somebody to heaven that you're going to bring back in the future to serve yeah. as a prophet? You know, it actually means that God felt compelled at the time of raising Jesus to heaven um, because he knew he was going to close profit in the future and therefore he needed to keep a back door open for himself. So as to, uh, you know, enable prophethood to continue. Well, why close in the first place? And if the need for prophethood continues and you're going to bring a prophet back, then well, what, well, what's the difference between you know, a person who's from 2,000 years ago and a person who's, who's, who's now present? In fact, the Quran explicitly states that prophets are always raised from the people to whom they ascend. Hmm. You know, which 2,000-year-old Jesus would not be. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Very comprehensive answer. Uh, we'll move on to the next comment. Okay, so let's have a look at the next comment. This is a long one from Fuberus Rex. He says, I've been following this channel for a while. So this is on the um, uh, Russell Brand video. So go and have a look at that if you haven't seen that already. I've been following this channel for a while. And as a Christian, I have to say that I found this discussion remarkable. 
Thank you, I think. Uh, I must confess ignorance in the major distinctions of the Ahmadiyya movement within Islam, but some of the things Tahir and Nasser said <laughs> resonate so closely with what is taught by Jesus and are so distant to what I found when I read the Quran and what I've heard from other Muslim commentators, etc. In particular, two things. One, that we cannot make ourselves right, that only God can, and only by his coming to us. And two, that praying constantly is the best path to living out our purpose. The first is a central Christian doctrine that we are fallen and hopelessly lost on our own, and that we need God to save us from our sin, which fundamentally separates us from him, regardless of how much good we might do to compensate. The second reminds me of Jesus's instructions related by John, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Being in constant communication and recognition of Christ's presence in us leads us to bearing, leads to bearing much fruit, i.e. fulfilling our purpose in life. I'm curious how deeply the similarity goes. Does Ahmadiyya Islam teach that God loves us? And if so, do, does God love us in the same way that Jesus describes the love of the father for the prodigal son, i.e. that God loves us even while we are rejecting and offending him? Would appreciate hearing your thoughts. Uh, Mr. Rex, uh, we would like to address some of your comments and your questions. Um, so what jumps out of you there? I mean, he asked, he asked a whole load of things there. What, what jumps out of you first? What jumps out of me is that he's actually... Um, in his statements about the Christian position, he's combined two um, conflicting theologies. Mm -hmm. um, so he's described God as loving him, and God, God as loving mankind, like like and the prodigal the other... son. Sorry, like the prodigal son, like the prodigal son, and then he's also talked about us being fallen. Um, I don't know what he necessarily means by that. Does he simply mean that we? Well, I think yeah. it's the original sin thing, isn't it? If, it, if, it, if, it, if it's genuinely the original sin doctrine, then I, I think that is completely contrary to um, <clears throat> to God loving us. Um, so, I mean, I think, let's go through it, you know, statement by statement, I think it's important because he's he's taken a long time to write this and it's a very well thought out question. But can, um, can, before we do that, I think it may be profitable um, to just describe what the prodigal son um, was. What was that? What was that parable? And what did it tell us? Because that may be a good base, because he kind of finished on that. And I remember with your interview with Simon Bardell, um, you with AMSA quite a few oh, years ago. I forgot about that interview. <laughs> Not the interview, the, the, the debate that you did at uh, debate, yeah. Queen Mary's University. Um, you, but that was, that was a major, major discussion point. And um, uh, um, you'd have to answer the whole question, but I mean, I think that might be a good, a good place to start. The prodigal son and how that compares with with Christian theology. So the prodigal son is the perfect um, example of Islamic philosophy. So Islamic philosophy in relationship between God and man is, is exactly the prodigal son. The problem is, is that Christian philosophy is completely at odds with the story of the prodigal son. Um, theology, I should say, the Christian doctrine, not what Jesus said and taught. We would say what Jesus said and taught in the Bible is completely in accordance with Islam. What is the doctrines of, of, of Christianity, which emerge from Pauline concepts in Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, they are completely antithetical to Jesus' teachings and stories like the prodigal son. Prodigal son is, you know, young man, wants to make his own way in the world, leaves his home. I'm probably missing out some essential details here, but this is what I understand of it. You know, he leaves his home, wastes all of his father's inheritance that he gave him, 
comes back um, and his father, uh, he comes back to his father and his father welcomes him with open arms despite the fact that he's wasted all of his money. All right. Um, and so that is the, in fact, there's a much stronger version, you could say version of the prodigal son, the Ahadith. I mean, this notion of the prodigal son that he's wasted all of his money and yet the father permits him back into his home and welcomes him with open arms is nothing. It's nothing in compared to what the Prophet Muhammad said about God. You know, the story of the man who had killed 99 people, right? The story of the man who killed 99 people, he went to a man of religion and a scholar of religion. He said, can I ever be forgiven by God? And the man said, no. So he killed that man and he made a tough, nice hundred. Then he felt guilty after a while. And he went to another man who was a man of insight, the, the, the Prophet Muhammad said. One was a man of religion. The other man was a man of insight and knowledge. Hmm. And the man of knowledge said, yes, you can be forgiven, but you have to migrate from this city to that other city. Uh, this is the city of sin, that is the city of purity. And he said on the way, the man started to die and he started to crawl towards his destination. And when he died on the way, um, the angels of punishment and the angels of mercy arrived to take him to heaven or to hell. And the angels of punishment said he's killed 100 people. So this guy's going to hell. And he didn't get to the city of, city of you know, purity. And the angels of mercy said, yes, but he was trying to get there. And they submitted to God what was the reality you know, what should we do with him? And God said, measure out the land between where he died and where he was going and where he died and where he'd come from. And as, and whichever city he is nearest, account him as belonging to that city. If he's closest to the city he's coming from, he goes to hell. If he's close to the city he's going to, he goes to heaven. And they measured out the land and God contracted as they were measuring it. It says, and the Prophet Muhammad said, he, God contracted the land between where he died and where he was going and expanded it between where he died and where he'd come from. And so, that's a much more sophisticated, a much more sophisticated parable. version, parable, phenomenally more sophisticated. There's, there's a degree of sophistication, understanding of that in terms of God's attitude is that, is that actually God is the owner of the individual. And this is the fundamental difference between Christianity and Islam in terms of the question of forgiveness in Christianity. God in Christian doctrine, God has not forgiven a single soul ever. He has punished every soul eternally, some Christians would say, not all, but some would say, eternally for their sins in hell because they have not accepted Jesus. Okay. And for those who have accepted Jesus, he punished Jesus. Right? Jesus was made to suffer for their sins. He bore their sins for them. So in Christianity, that's a completely different, the Christian doctrines are different to the story of the prodigal son or the story that I've just outlined, um, which are stories clearly of forgiveness. Before we um, go any further, let me just ask. So you've said it's the, the stories, the parables of the prodigal son, the parable of the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, are ones of forgiveness and repentance, basically, right? They're, they're a key of, is, is of repentance. So the, the, the prodigal son, he wastes his life or the, his life until that point, and then he, he seeks to atone for it, so he makes his journey back to his father. And for that effort, his father recognizes it and gives him his gifts, and the other one is jealous because he doesn't realize that actually it's the father's gifts to give and he can give it to whomsoever he pleases. And this person has shown genuine effort and repentance over the life that he has lived. And in the same way, the... Um, with the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the parable that he told, the person, despite being the most heinous serial murderer in history, potentially, has um, has decided, I want to make it to the city of uh, 
I'm not sure what it was called, but, you know, the city, basically, of, of salvation. He wants to get to that place. He wants to make the effort and atone for his wrongs. So he sets out on that journey, and he doesn't even finish the journey. He doesn't even finish the journey, but God considers it finished because he was on his way. He was on his way. Mm. So it's one Although of... more than that. There's a lot more than that. Right. There's a lot more sophistication in it. You know, there's the fact that he first goes to a man of knowledge who tells him no. Yeah. Then he goes to a man of insight. He first goes to a man of religion, of religion, of, of like a mulvi or a mullah. He goes to a scholar, so-called, you know, who just tells him the facts, right. but doesn't have insight. Then he kills him. What does that mean? It means that, you know, while while attempting to fulfill the commandments and you know, while simply attempting to fulfill the commandments, a person continually and repeatedly falls down. That's what it means. And goes mm. back to their old ways because he turned away. He said, "I want to repent," but then he ends up killing that guy as well. So what does that so mean? So it means that it didn't. It wasn't a source of repentance for him. It wasn't a source of reformation. That yes, that that doctor of religion exactly. wasn't a source of reformation for him. So the doctrines that he represents, i.e., or the spirit of being highly legalistic and yes and no, things are cut and dry. You've done this bad. You've done this many bad things. Therefore, no, I don't think that's what it means. I think it's just a representation that people who are seeking to repent continually fail at it hmm. i think that's all it means and and people who are cut and dry um they don't appreciate that god's mercy is vast absolutely vast right um but when he went to the man of insight he understood that god's mercy is vast and encompasses even this person as it says in the quran i mean the person the gentleman what's his name fubarus rex you know he yeah. says he read the quran sure that's a real did name he, did he did he did he not read the verse of the quran that allah says you know uh, verily, I will cause to enter hell whomsoever I please. However, my, however, my mercy encompasses all things. Hmm. Did he not read that verse and, and understand the message that was being given there? Hmm. Um, if his mercy encompasses all things, it encompasses the people in hell as well. Which is why right. in Islam, there's no such thing as eternal hell. Yeah. People will ultimately leave hell and enter paradise. Okay. So in the in the in the Islamic, and so then then the then the man goes to the city of purity. And he dies, and God is the one who expands the land and contracts it. In other words, um, God God is stuck to the rules, in a sense, hmm. literalistically, because he said, measure out the land, right? Whichever one to which he is close, so assign him to that city. Hmm. But God himself changed the underlying reality hmm. by which then the answer that God desired would be achieved. And what that tells you is that in the Islamic philosophy, and this is something that Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, uh, the founder of the Ahmadiyya community, peace be on him, wrote at length about. In Islam, God is the master, while in Christianity, God is the judge. And the difference is this, is that the master is the one who owns both the aggrieved party and um, the, the perpetrator of the crime. The offender. He owns, he owns them as a matter of his, the, his property. And if he wishes to forgive the person who has committed a crime and recompense from himself the person who is aggrieved, he is fully within his bounds to do so. But a judge who stands in justice between a plaintiff and a victim, sorry, I don't know, between a victim and a criminal, he has no right to forgive the criminal and tell the victim to, and give anything to the victim. He's there only to pass judgment between the two. And in the Christian theology, God is a judge. He's not a master, which is why every sin must be punished. Yeah. Every sin must be punished. Every sin of every non-Christian must be punished upon them. And every sin of every Christian is punished upon Jesus. So okay. Jesus has suffered for the sins of mankind. So in the Christian doctrines, not the prodigal son, which is from Jesus, but in the doctrines which emerge from Paul, in Corinthians, Galatians, Romans, 
in those doctrines, um, God is the most unforgiving individual in human in ever. He's never forgiven a single person because you can't say I've forgiven you, but I've punished somebody else. Hmm. You can't say I've forgiven the debt. Oh, but this other guy's paid it for you. That's not hmm. forgiveness. Forgiveness is to say this debt is paid. Don't worry. I'll treat it as if it has been paid. Okay. That's what forgiveness is. And that's the story of the prodigal son. And that's the story of the prophet Muhammad, but it's not the story of Christian theology and doctrine. Because Christian theology and doctrine is saying that uh, Jesus died for your sins, right? So he, he atoned for all the sins of everyone who believes in him and that sin had to be punished because that sin is so offensive to god it had to be punished so it's punished on jesus all the believe all christian believers sins are punished via jesus in those three days in hell that they claim he went through and then he came back right and then everyone else who doesn't believe in christianity is going to burn in hell uh, basically eternally for their sins so that's a very interesting well, there's point a lot of made. some christians say different things about that so let's not make make broad some broad assumptions and misrepresent some christians might say that's not the case some do a lot do sure but i i would argue that's still the inevit inevitable um outcome of the philosophy as well and, and yeah, that is what many is. christians say because if you have to if the only way to salvation is through belief in jesus and the atoning death if you can get that through some other route well why can't everyone get that through that some yeah that's true exactly yeah that's true i'm trying to be nice but <laughs> no, no it's, a, it's a fair point but um but that, that means there's no, God has never forgiven anybody, which is remarkable because the Christian view of God, which is preached, is that God is a very forgiving, very, very loving God, uh, very soft-hearted God, etc. Whereas actually the, do, the, out, the, the outcome of the philosophy is that he's never forgiven anybody. Whereas in Islam, sin is, sin is an offense against God and he can, he can remove it if he so wishes because he owns you and he owns every a aspect of the action and he can, he can let it go. He can forgive it. And this is something which I think Christians should reflect upon, which is why can't God forgive sins? Why can't he forgive sins? Because after all, aren't we made in his image? Weren't we made in God's image? If so, how can we have a capacity, and it's a positive capacity, which we, which we see as one of the greatest human capacities. How can we have such a capacity if it did not come from God? If you wrong me, or I wrong you, then you have the ability to forgive me and I have the ability to forgive you. And in most cases, the more you do that, the more I do that, the more laudable um, our actions and our behavior is to each other. But God apparently is unable to do that, simply unable to do that, either unable or, or unwilling, I guess. It's a strange holiness that he's so holy he can't forgive. <laughs> I find that to be a very strange and peculiar holiness because the more holy a person on earth becomes, the more they forgive. Mm. Mm. And you know, you're absolutely right. Sin in Islam is not a debt. It's not a thing to be paid. It's nothing like that in Islam. Sin is God's displeasure. Hmm. There's a good example where the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he saw a prostitute in Medina. Or he said, he told the story of a prostitute who saw a thirsty cat beside a well. And she took off her shoe and she lowered it into the well, got water for the cat and gave it to the cat. And he said about her that God forgave her all of her sins of her life because of that. Hmm. Now, the question is, is feeding a thirsty cat um, from a... If you're going to weigh them up in the scales, yeah, is it as bad as serial what, prostitution, which is, you know, serial adultery, you know, transmission of disease associated with all number of other awful, you know, lifestyle behaviors, right? Yeah. Is it the same, that one act? Is it actually the same thing if you were going to weigh it up as a literalist, like that man of religion, compared to the man of insight? Yeah. The answer is no. Um, 
you know, it's nowhere near uh, as, as it, do, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't weigh in the balance as much. The point being the problem Muhammad made is that, you know, God was pleased with that action and God's pleasure is the antidote to his displeasure. And if sin is his displeasure, then do something to please him and it will wipe away the, the sin you have incurred. And the same goes for all of our relationships. And this is precisely what Jesus said. He said, our, in, the, in the Lord's Prayer, what does he say? He says, oh, Lord, forgive us as we forgive those who wrong us. Hmm. What is the nature in which we forgive those who wrong us? They wrong us. We're upset with them. We then have a conversation of some sort, presumably, and we forgive them and we get past it. And then we are pleased with them again. And it did not require any payment of debt from anyone. And the prodigal son um, didn't, didn't pay anything back. He didn't. Yeah, the prodigal son paid nothing back. He simply you know, showed up. He simply showed up. With exactly. a sincere heart. Exactly. So this, the concept of the prodigal son is diametrically opposed to Christian theological doctrine. Um, but it is completely in keeping with everything Jesus said, which isn't completely in keeping with what the Quran says and the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So the odd one out is not Jesus. The odd one out is not Muhammad, peace be upon them both. The odd one out is Pauline doctrines, hmm. which sit in the middle and create a complete and utter contradiction um, between what Jesus said and what Paul said. Yeah. Between what Jesus said and what Paul said. Yeah. Okay. Um, and just to close off that, what is the, can you expand a little bit upon the, uh, the concept of salvation specifically in Islam? And what did the Prophet Muhammad say? Did he say anything about this, about his personal salvation? Yeah. So the question, he, you know, the gentleman uh, very fairly asked is, you know, does, is there the concept in Islam that a person can only enter paradise by God's mercy? And the answer is yes. That is exactly what the Prophet Muhammad said. You know, so this is a, a hadith from Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim. Sahih Bukhari 6099 is the reference, Sahih Muslim 2818. So it's the highest degree of authenticity in this in the two most revered books of traditions and statements of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and the books that are considered most authoritative. It says Aisha, the wife of the Prophet, peace be upon him, reported, the Messenger of Allah, peace and blessings upon Allah be upon him, said, follow the right course, seek nearness to God, and give glad tidings. Verily, none of you will enter paradise by his deeds alone. They said, not even you, O Messenger of Allah. The Prophet said, not even me, unless Allah grants me his mercy. Know that even the most beloved deed, deed to Allah is that which is done regularly, even if it is small. And so the question is, is what does he mean by nobody will enter heaven by his deeds? Now, does this have any relationship to the Pauline concept of salvation is not by deeds, but by faith? The answer is no. Um, deed, what he means to say is that none of you are guaranteed. It's not like you do a certain number of deeds and you are guaranteed paradise. That's mm. what he's saying here. He's not saying that deeds are not worthwhile because the Quran is full of statements that those who believe and do good deeds shall have paradise. Those who believe and do good deeds continuously. Hmm. says you know it says that has that refrain repeatedly what it means is, is that nobody should think that their deeds are sufficient and that they are guaranteed a place in paradise hmm. um rather it is god's mercy that he accepts those deeds hmm. but those deeds it, it's not like those deeds don't have an effect it's whether god accepts those deeds or not right. in the pauline concept your deeds literally have nothing to do with anything um and it's about your faith in jesus christ which I always wondered. I mean, we have the opposite in life again. Again, it's completely diametrically opposed to real life. If somebody says to you, I don't count what you do, it's only what you say that's <laughs> of any value. In fact, I think there are sayings to the opposite. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, yeah, exactly. People actually often say, it doesn't matter what you say, it's what you do. Walk yeah. the walk, don't talk the talk. If you talk the talk, walk the walk. Hmm. Paul is saying, 
don't bother walking the walk, talk the talk and I'll listen to you. I mean, what? <laughs> makes no sense. Hmm. He says, if you believe it with your mind and heart and, you know, say it up on your lips, then that, you know, that Jesus is your savior, then you will be saved. Yeah. In, in the Quranic view, there's three groups of people. There's the believers, the disbelievers, and the hypocrites. And somebody who says something but doesn't actually fulfill it with their action is regarded as a hypocrite and is regarded as worse than the disbelievers in the Quran. Hmm. So it's honest in a sense to what their yeah, beliefs disbelievers are. at least honest. They're like, I don't believe in it. Get away, get away, get out of my face. <laughs> right? Hypocrites are liars to themselves and to society. Hmm. So, you know, Paul encouraged hypocrisy through his doctrines from an Islamic perspective. And, uh, well, I'm sure we're going to have plenty more discussions about Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's an excellent book, uh, Paul and the Pharisee Conspiracy Against Jesus, which we'll put in the link dis description below. Uh, full disclosure is written by our father. <laughs> 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 but it's a fantastic book, which goes into um, uh, a lot of this in depth. So, yeah. um, 750 we... pages, so it's a lot more than what we just said. And, and if I may just, just add one little bit on the end, which I just remembered, I was going to say earlier, is what is the relationship between believing that Jesus died for your sins and salvation? If salvation is basically the love of God and a relationship with God, which is in the Islamic concept is what it is, it's having that relationship, a deep relationship of love with God. Um, how does believing that Jesus died and died for your sins actually inspire any kind of love of God or anything else? I mean, it's, it doesn't seem to, on its face, even have any direct relationship between you and God. It just comes out as being a very strange doctrine in a way, because when you think about it, you think, well, you know, why did God punish Jesus for my sins? Um, oh, Jesus is himself. Okay, that still doesn't do anything to, purif to purify my heart. Um, so I don't think there's any real relationship between salvation and, uh, and the love of God and believing in that doctrine, and certainly, especially if you don't act upon it in any way. In this, in this regard, I just wanted to add a statement of the founder of the Ahmadiyya community, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, on the nature of salvation. Um, so he, he, he explained, he says exactly this point. Um, and he says, um, this is on, in the book Essence of Islam, volume 2, page 254. He says, it may be asked that if the blood of Jesus cannot purify from sin, as indeed it cannot then is there any way of being purified from sin for a sinful life is worse than death? My answer to this question, which Can I said Can you repeat that again? Sorry. He says, it may be asked that if the blood of Jesus cannot purify from sin, as indeed it cannot, hmm. then is there any way of being purified from sin for a sinful life is worse than death? Mm -hmm. My answer to this question, which I set forth with full force from my personal experience, is that from the time that man was created up to today, there has been only one means of escaping sin and disobedience. That means is through convincing arguments and shining signs, a person should arrive at the understanding which truly makes God manifest and through which one realizes that God's wrath is a consuming fire and which proves that through a manifestation of divine beauty that every perfect delight is in God. In other words, though through such understanding, all veils are lifted from glory and beauty. This is the only way by which passions are restrained and man experiences inner change. On hearing this answer, many people will exclaim, do we not believe in God? Do we not fear God and love him? Does not the whole world, with few exceptions, believe in God? This was in the 19th century. <laughs> then why is it that they commit all manner of sins and appear involved in diverse forms of wickedness? The answer to this is that faith is one thing and understanding is another. I do not mean that a believer avoids sin, 
but I mean that a man of perfect understanding avoids it. That is to say, a person who has tasted both the fear of God and the love of God. And then he goes on to say, faith is only, only means to believe as the result of thinking well of a thing, but understanding means to behold that in which one has put one's faith. And he goes on to say, for instance, if a person does not know that what he has in his hand is arsenic, he might swallow a large dose of it, deeming it to be some useful medicine. But he who knows that it is a fatal poison will not swallow the smallest quantity of it, for he would realize that by eating it, he would pass away from this world. In the same way, when a person knows for certain that God undoubtedly exists and that every type of sin is punishable in his estimation, all sins automatically fall away from him. He then goes on to say, how can one attain that degree of knowledge? And he says the only way is by um, keeping company with uh, benefiting from the company of prophets and saintly people such that God um, elevates a person to a station of God himself speaking to you. And that when God speaks to you, then you come to know that God certainly exists or that you witness the fruits of God speaking to someone else. Yeah. And we, we certainly believe that the, the doors to divine revelation and you know, revelate direct hearing of God or visions and true dreams are open today as they once were. And that's um, one of the main parts of that, the Ahmadiyya doctrine, is that you can still get that certainty of God, which will lead and inspire the true love, which will safeguard you from sin and is ultimately the foundation of your salvation. Um, thank you for that. So uh, let's go to the next comment. And the next comment is going to be here. So this was just a just I just thought it was um it was just lovely anyway. So it says the mystery of beauty and the mystery of metamorphosis, as noted by Wallace. That realization from this interview is breathtaking and such great evidence for ID. Also, Darwin is racist and has a supremacist worldview. It is no wonder that his findings were mobilized for racist genocidal policies. Um, so let's just talk about just briefly the uh, the mystery of metamorphosis, as noted by Wallace. Um, what what did you make of that when you saw that when you saw that I mean you I think you've already read that aspect of what Wallace had said already um, but what did you make of that Yeah I mean Wait, should um, we sorry let's should we should we quickly summarize for those who haven't seen that video basically Yeah I think you should do that So uh, Alfred Russell Wallace was um, Darwin's rival and that's the the name of the video um, he co-founded theory of evolution but then said that natural selection can explain some things but actually you have to rely on God guiding evolution for so many other things by the end of his life they vastly outnumbered anything that selection could explain really and one of the things he spoke about was um, metamorphosis how the caterpillar becomes the butterfly because he said well if all of its needs were met as a caterpillar and it was surviving perfectly well why did it need to become a butterfly and why are so many things like uh, why do we have so much beauty in uh, in the natural world this is not necessary for um, just pure survival and in fact why do we have so many of these different features in the natural world which uh, do not pass the, the principle of utility, meaning that it's not simply the case that um, they have a uh, they are necessary for survival. And he gave the example um, of, for instance, let's just choose one. Let's say um, deep mathematical ability, because people have had this. Humans have had this throughout history, even when there's no maths to speak of. And even today, in some indigenous tribes, they don't have any form of mathematics apart from most basic arithmetic. If you take a child from such an indigenous tribe and you raise them in England um, and you train them in mathematics, they'll be able to do extremely advanced mathematics and may even win a, win a field, field medal, field prize, whatever it's called. So that means that that knowledge was latent and that ability, that mathematical ability was latent in the, um, 
in the in 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 humans themselves and it's the same as for musical ability for spiritual ability for um language even in itself so many things are unnecessary they they you can survive without them and humans could survive without them so why do we have them and wallace was led to believe therefore that evolution was directed to a higher purpose that ultimately the natural world was there to serve humans and humans are there for their moral and spiritual progress so um that comment was referring back to that and i just wanted to know i mean did you have any particular particular thoughts on that that whole phenomenon and wallace's um wallace's you know noticing of that uh, as he did in that era i mean the fact that he noticed it is uh shows the penetration of his mind compared to darwin hmm. who strikes me as a man who continually sought justification for his theory for his philosophical beliefs yeah um his theory was was <clears throat> constructed so as to serve his philosophical outlook that you know of materialism in effect wallace in, in particular i like because he um and the point he makes here about um that we are it seems we are constructed to serve a higher purpose is very telling because it, it strikes me as something very similar to what the fourth khalifa of the ahmadiyya community in his book revelation rationality knowledge and truth wrote in which he said that to him evolution bore less resemblance to uh, natural selection in terms of um it showed less evidence of things simply being selected by their environment than actually that the trajectory of evolution um, shows discernible direction um, from a state of low consciousness to a state of higher consciousness. Mm -hmm. Now, in this paradigm, if which is exactly correct, I mean, you get prebiotic organisms, microorganisms, plants, you know, first you get algae on the sea floor, and then you get on the sea surface, and then you get plants eventually, and then eventually you get animals of some sort and they then you get mm -hmm. a development into mammalian life form then you get into um you know hominid life form basically yeah um so <clears throat> that shows a clear trajectory in the very brief outline um of increasing consciousness increasing cerebral ability increasing awareness of one's surroundings mm -hmm. now the question that comes on from that is well what's the next stage of evolution yeah this is where religion kind of offers an answer which science cannot because um you know in effect what religious teachings are saying what islam Ahmadiyya in particular is saying is that the the, tra the trail of evolution continues we're going to continue evolving in the direction of increasing consciousness only now you become conscious of a non-material entity and so now your 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 evolution is no longer material it's actually a non-material process and yeah. that is spirituality um and so you know, that is also what the Mirhaz Mirzaghulam Ahmed, uh, peace be on him, founder of the Ahmadiyya community in his book, Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam, when asked on the chapter, what is the purpose of life? He writes, the purpose of life can be discerned by of an organism, can be discerned by that to which the faculties of that, of that being reach to the highest point. So he said, a bullock can only have a dream and is clearly suited to, you know, you know walking around in a field. Okay, that's what it's clearly adapted and suited for, and that's the highest reach of its abilities. But when we consider man, he says, and a human being, he says the highest reach of, of man's imagination and mind reaches to the concept of an immaterial God and creator. And that indicates that that is actually its highest point, and that is the destination of its development. So we have spiritual evolution that's ongoing. 
Yeah, which is a, which is a continuation of the material evolution we've undergone. And I mean, you know, if one was getting really pedantic about things, you could even argue that the evolution that we have undergone is spiritual in nature already. Because nobody really understands, for example, a lot of the features of or the behavioral features of any organism on the planet. Nobody knows why bees do a dance or why flies behave in a particular way or why animals you know, have in, what we call instincts. Nobody knows yeah. any of this. So much of animals that we assume is biological in terms of genetic or physical. We have no idea what it is. And the Quran says about the bees, for example, it says that the behavior of bees is a manifestation of God's command to them of revelation. So the question is, is all animal behavior, is it, actual, is it in actual fact a manifestation of... Uh, a command from God to the souls, to the uh, to the spirit of animals. I was uh, just on that. It was interesting. I was reading a book recently called um, The Strange Audio Order of Things by Antonio Damasio. Uh, and he's a big shot neurologist and, and he's very smart, obviously. All due respect to him, he's done a lot of good work in the field of emotions and affect and it's about that. But I had to stop it. I couldn't, I couldn't continue. Because he kept on basically explaining, he kept on describing how bacteria have behavior. And they have, they have, there's a lot of research showing that they have behavior that is um, similar to ours, but obviously much more rudimentary. And it seems that they have, you know, almost forms of emotions. They have very basic, you know, forms of emotions of seeking security or, or even forms of altruism, that kind of thing. Um, I'm not sure if it's specifically altruism, but there's a lot of research showing that bacteria have behaviors like us, but in a much more rudimentary form. But then he kept on saying that, but obviously they're not conscious, really. <laughs> I'm not saying they're not conscious, you know, they're, obviously you don't have conscious, you know, you have to have a nervous system and, and these kinds of things. And it just, I was just like, how do you know? Why do you keep covering yourself? And then he kept on speaking in this kind of like double language where he was almost saying, well, I think maybe they are conscious, but not really. And why don't you just bite the bullet and actually accept that life is life and that consciousness is consciousness and that, you know, even even very rudimentary forms of life have consciousness and um, even if it's not as developed as we have. Um, but there there seems to be this driving force in science to, to say that everything is just reductionist, everything is your nervous system and stems out of your nervous system and you have to have a nervous system to be conscious because consciousness obviously isn't anything weird or slightly spiritual, heaven forbid. Um, so there, there's this undercurrent. Oh, heaven forbid! <laughs> I can't say that. It's being ironical, but okay. <laughs> um, so I, I was just—it uh, it, just—it was—it was another example of how afraid people are of even mentioning the idea of a spirit or a soul. And it strikes me because in that book, Revelation, Rationality, Knowledge, and Truth, uh, by the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he says something in his—you know—one of the most brilliant chapters on consciousness, and they're all brilliant chapters. Yeah, specifically a brilliant chapter on, um, on I think it's actually in the question of suffering. And he said that bacteria have a diffuse sense of consciousness, which you cannot pin down, but they have it. And I remember reading that as a, as a, as a youngster, um, obviously very old and grey now, but as a youngster, I remember reading that. And uh, I, I just, it's always struck me because it seems, it seems true, but it seems also very strange that they have a form of consciousness. But scientific research is also showing this. Will the scientific community accept that and accept that maybe consciousness isn't um, dependent on your nervous system? 